Price. That's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the long term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. This week's episode is slightly different. You'll hear a live Q&A held on Twitter Spaces last Friday with founder of Veilshire Capital Management and friend of the show, Jeff Ross. Jeff occupies the rare space of being both a radiologist and a founder of a successful hedge fund. And while the latter provides an innovative all-weather portfolio management system, which has returned 95% in the past year, another topic currently holds Ross's attention, Bitcoin. I quiz Jeff on Bitcoin's credentials as a store of value, comparing the cryptocurrency to physical SOVs like silver and gold. It's an open floor debate too, with a handful of listeners asking for Jeff's opinion on anything from the merits of the stock to flow model, the ugly price actions surrounding El Salvador's turbulent BTC debut, and Jeff's long-term price target. Before we get started, given this was a live recording discussing a cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, we're required to read out the following risk warnings. CMC Markets does not endorse or offer opinion on the trading strategies used by the author. Their trading strategies do not guarantee any return and CMC Markets shall not be held responsible for any loss that you may incur, either directly or indirectly arising from any investment based on any information contained herein. 67% of retail investor accounts lose money when spread betting and or trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. Now, on with the episode. I think we can crack on with uh, today's Q&A. So as Sophie said, I've got a few questions that I want to ask Jeff, but I'll try and take questions throughout as well to get everyone involved. Um, I want to start, I think we're going to have people that are quite sophisticated, sort of Bitcoin traders, investors, and then we've got people maybe more so from the opto community that are a little bit more foundational in terms of the level uh, of, of knowledge they do have this cryptocurrency. So hopefully there's something there's going to be something here for everyone. But first things first, I want to start by understanding Bitcoin as a store of value for more traditional assets, before on to valuation models and uh, recent price action. Next question, gold, platinum, and silver are often compared to Bitcoin as a store of value. But in what ways does a digital SOV differ with physical commodities? Jeff, what's your take on that? Yeah, hey, thanks. First of all, guys, thanks for having me, Hayden and Sophie. I appreciate the invitation to be here. Uh, excited for this space. So, so thanks for putting the time and effort into, into making this happen. This is it's, it's a fun time. So how does Bitcoin compare to gold and other stores of values like uh, platinum and silver and such? So for the first part, um, I, I want to give uh, all due uh, respect to gold and people who are still kind of into gold and say that gold has really done an admirable job as a stable store of value for the past uh, several millennia. So basically in the analog age prior to the internet, it did a great job. Basically, the same amount of gold could buy you the same sort of amount of goods uh, and services throughout time. And that's pretty fantastic. And that was basically the best option that we had as a store of value uh, in the analog age. But then along comes the digital age, which is what we're in now, and we're transitioning into the digital age. And and so a digital store of value is something that's uh, even uh, better in many ways than than gold has been in the in the in the past. And so there's there's several reasons for this. One is because while gold is generally a scarce asset, it's not a perfectly scarce asset. And that's one of the things that Bitcoin was the first to solve is basically a digitally scarce asset. Uh, for people who don't know, there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be mined. And so that basically makes it perfectly scarce. So as long as that there is uh, a demand for Bitcoin, 
Um, and you have, and, and, and for people who know, you know, basic economics, economics 101, supply demand curves, we have a perfectly inelastic supply of Bitcoin and an ever increasing demand for Bitcoin. So what has to happen just basically mathematically is that the price will go up accordingly. So if the demand for Bitcoin rises exponentially, then so shall the price. Um, so that's one thing. I, there, there's many differences between uh, Bitcoin and gold that I think make it a superior store of value. One is portability. Uh, it's, it's obviously really hard to carry a million dollars worth of gold in your pocket or in a suitcase without drawing it in and try that with a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars worth of gold. Um, and so Bitcoin can be transported instantaneously anywhere around the world. It doesn't weigh anything, obviously, because it's a digital asset uh, and it can be, uh, it's infinitely divisible. Uh, right now it's divisible to a hundred uh, million units. That's called a Satoshi, one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. Uh, and um, and so, so you don't have any issues with any of those kind of things, storage, transportability, um, divisibility, things like that, make it superior. And I'll stop there. <laughs> Great. Yeah, really full answer. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so before we move on then, um, it seems then obviously gold and physical commodities, sorry, correlation with Bitcoin is something that obviously a lot of people watch. Uh, there's been a few interesting developments over the couple of months in that space as well. Where do you see that correlation headed over the next 12 months? Do you expect sort of major divergence in the medium term? Sure. So I think, and again, I don't mean to come down on gold, but I think to me, it's very clear that we're starting to see the demonetization of gold over time. And so gold has been this traditional store of value. And again, it has done a very commendable job at being a stable store of value. But now we have this appreciating, perfectly scarce store of value. And very few young people are interested in gold these days. There are still some, but much less than in uh, decades past. And so I think it's pretty clear that at some point, uh, the market cap of Bitcoin, which is currently just under $1 trillion, will eventually uh, cross that of gold, which is around 10 or $11 trillion, depending on how you, you evaluate it. Um, and so I, I think that's the first step for Bitcoin in regards to gold, is that it's going to catch up to and eventually surpass gold as more and more people see it as a, a, a new and better and longer lasting or a value in this new digital age. So I think that's that's step one, and I think we're going to get into further steps, um, but I'll stop there again. Yeah, no, great. That's really interesting, Jeff. Um, I'll kind of take this uh, opportunity to invite people to request uh, to, to ask any questions. Just hit that icon that Sophie mentioned at the start. Uh, I'll crack on with the questions, but we'll see those notifications come up, and Sophie will let you in and when. Uh, but next question from me. It'd be interesting now to move on, I suppose, to how we can accurately assess Bitcoin's real, in inverted commas, value. Um, obviously, people have a different take on kind of view of this cryptocurrency to be. So firstly, can you talk to us, particularly for those unfamiliar with it, how investors can the stock to flow model to estimate Bitcoin's value? It's something that I've heard you speak about before, and I'd be really interested to just get your kind of brief explanation of how that model works. Sure. So the stock-to-flow model is a very interesting model. Um, just just for you know, just for the record, I should say, I, I don't necessarily adhere to it, but I think it's very interesting, and it has been uh, shockingly accurate to date. So, so we'll see if that holds into the future. But the point of the stock-to-flow model is that uh, humans value assets based on their scarcity and based on how, uh, how much the uh, supply of a given asset is increasing over time. So a good example is gold. Gold, you know, people obviously have uh, treasured that as, um, as a form of money, uh, among other things. It has other use cases, obviously, but for, for several thousands of years. And um, the amount of new gold that is coming into the market each year, that's called the flow of, of new gold, is about one to two or sometimes two and a half percent per year on average. Uh, that's how much the supply of new gold. So the stock to flow, the stock is the amount of gold that's out there. Flow is the, uh, the amount of new gold that trickles into the supply um, every year. 
Um, every every asset has its own kind of stock to flow model that you can calculate. It, it's difficult. It's very difficult to do that accurately with most assets. Ironically, uh, but hopefully not surprisingly, it's very easy to do this with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is an open source protocol for all the world to see. Uh, as most people know, uh, new Bitcoin comes onto the market approximately every 10 minutes, and that's by design. And so right now we have uh, in Bitcoin about 900 new Bitcoin coming uh, onto the market each day. That's how much is mined each day, roughly. It's 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 fairly accurate, but it, it holds to that over time. Um, and so that stock to flow model is set to decrease every four years. So it has a disinflationary uh, schedule, meaning that every four years, the amount of new flow coming into the overall Bitcoin market gets halved, gets cut by 50%. Um, and so whereas, uh, you know, two years ago, it was 1800 new Bitcoin per day. Now it's 900 Bitcoin, uh, new Bitcoin per day. Uh, after the next halving in 2024, that's for the 900 is going to get cut in half again down to 450. And so it's a disinflationary asset. And that's going to continue all the way until the year of 2140. So about 119 years from now. So we'll, none of us will probably be around I'm guessing uh, at that point, but at that point, it will go from being a disinflationary asset to a non-inflationary asset. Great. Thanks, Jeff. I think we've got a question from, I can see power there, speaker. If you want to unmute yourself, uh, feel free to jump in. Oh, yeah. Hey, you guys are talking about the value of Bitcoin. I mean, I think like the value of Bitcoin like is undervalued at the moment. Uh, it's my personal opinion. I mean, how what value do, do we have to a global monetary network where you can send a billion dollars across the world uh, with no permission? Um, for like $20, like that's the power of Bitcoin. Like that's the power of the Bitcoin network. Like I think I was listening to Anthony Pompliano's podcast. Like there's some rich guy, like he sent like $2 billion across the world and he paid like $20 and it settled in 10 minutes. Like you can't do that with a bank. So the value of the Bitcoin network is like, I mean, we don't even know how valuable that is. Like, how do you even value something like that? Like the value of the lightning network, being able to send value over the internet like an email person to person peer-to-peer with no third party intermediary like i mean a country like el salvador has adopted the bitcoin standard and their country's gdp is going to be increased by billions of dollars over time like how do we value that i think that's like extremely valuable that's just my opinion yeah what's jeff what's your take on that i think it's a really interesting point about kind of the underlying network rather than just the coin itself like how, how do you value that network as Powell was saying what, what, what's your thoughts on that if any yeah Yes, I think Power brings up some great points. Power, nice to see you. Thanks for coming up. Um, yeah, I, I think that is just one of the use cases of Bitcoin. I think as people kind of fall further down the rabbit hole and study Bitcoin, they see that its use cases are myriad. It's more than just a monetary network. It's more than just a store of value. I, it's it's To me, it's, it's inevitable that this will become a world's reserve currency at some point. I don't know how quickly this happens, but I do think it's inevitable. And so how do you value this? So that, so we talked earlier about gold and its similarities to gold as a store of value. I think that is just the, the first step. I think after that, we're going to start looking around and looking at one, uh, what is the value of all of the currencies in the world? Because what if Bitcoin actually did become the de facto world currency? That's one thing to consider. And I think more importantly, because it's an appreciating store of value, you have to look at all of the other stores of value that exist in the world right now. So current stores of value include real estate, gold, I would argue that stocks and bonds all are stores of value. And I would also uh, argue that all of those are currently wildly overvalued. Uh, and that's a result of the, the government policies right now, the central bank policies of, of uh, monetary inflation that's going on. People need to have some way to um, store and increase their future purchasing power against fiat currencies that are rapidly depreciating. And I think more and more people are realizing that Bitcoin is the best way to hedge against this huge risk 
that we're seeing right now. So why do I bring all of that up? Because those things currently, the, the wealth in the world and the store of value wealth is currently around somewhere between 100 and $400 trillion, depending on how you calculate that. I actually think that's a very reasonable valuation for Bitcoin uh, at, by the end of this decade. What would that mean for the individual price of Bitcoin? Well, we know that um, if Bitcoin is, uh, the cap is about $1 trillion, that puts one Bitcoin at about $53,000. So we can say $50,000 just to make it easy. If we get up to the market cap of gold at $10 trillion, that puts the price of one Bitcoin at uh, $500,000. And then you can keep going up by, you go up by another factor of 10. If we reach $100 trillion, which I do think we do reach by, uh, by the end of this decade, um, that puts the price of one Bitcoin at about $5 million. So that's how I look at the intrinsic value of Bitcoin. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. We've got a few people that want to come in on this topic. Uh, in no particular order, Marcel, any questions or any follow-up on that? Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, joining me. Um, I'm not a native English speaker, so uh, <laughs> excuse my English. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you okay, really okay. well. I have a question. It's not directly about the price, but uh, combined, indir- indirectly uh, it does. The, uh, you mentioned the stock-to-flow uh, model. But you also have uh, increased um, exchange uh, sales pressure because all the Bitcoin they earn uh, of the transaction, they have to settle their costs in um, in dollars or uh, any native uh, currency they, they have. And uh, when talking about exchanges, exchanges do have uh, over-the-counter parties that go on the market. And combined with that, they... They have more and more leverage products, which professional uh, financial traders use often. And and when you see the the development that uh, probably uh, uh, ETFs are cash settled will be approved in the United States. In in Canada, uh, there are BTC uh, approved ETFs. But how do you see those developments? Because my opinion is: is it positive or negative that all those cash settled and uh, sell pressure uh, environment things uh, exist. What, what's your professional opinion about that? Yeah. Hey, Marcel, that's a great question. Thanks for coming up. Um, I think that there are pros and cons to that. And and so, I first of all, I would say it's inevitable that Bitcoin becomes financialized and with all of the good and bad things that come with that. And that's because it is a it's a burgeoning nascent asset class that people are realizing that if you want to have um, real alpha, if you want to be able to generate um, profits above the hurdle rate of the monetary inflation that's going on, you have to do more than just invest in the traditional 60-40 stock bond portfolio that people have been successfully doing for the last uh, uh, decade and and even beyond that. Um, And so financialization is inevitable because this is where the alpha has gone. Um, The good sides of that is that that means there are huge walls of money that are going to come in as Wall Street and other financial institutions come into Bitcoin around the world. Um, That's going to be what helps propel this from a $1 trillion asset to a $10 trillion asset to eventually a $100 trillion asset and beyond. So that's inevitable. That's a good thing if you're a long-term hodler of Bitcoin, as we like to say. The downsides of this, as you mentioned and as you surmised, there there are real downsides. So that we're going to see many more leveraged products come onto the market. There's going to be many ways for people to go in and lever up. We already have uh, you know, exchanges currently that allow 100x leverage on Bitcoin, which personally I think is ridiculous and I would never, ever, ever recommend that anybody do that because you can get really wrecked. Even if you are correct about where Bitcoin is going in the long run, you can get absolutely wiped out in the short term. So please don't do that. Um, but yeah, so that's inevitable that this kind of stuff is happening. That will uh, continue to add to volatility. In fact, we saw a great example of that on September 7th. We saw a $10,000 candle basically um, because uh, a lot of uh, leverage got wiped out very quickly and that can cascade 
it upon itself and it scares a lot of people. And unfortunately, it scares good, normal people, just regular people who have their hard-earned uh, savings stored in Bitcoin. Um, they panic and they sell at exactly the wrong time. And so I spend a lot of my time on Twitter trying to counsel those people to not ever sell uh, during a market panic like that. Um, so good question. I think it's inevitable that uh, the financialization of Bitcoin is going to happen. There are some good things about it, but there are also some negative sides as well. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. All right, a couple more uh, questions. Sorry. On sorry um, yeah, yeah okay, for you I, follow up. Yeah, a little, little follow up. How do you see that uh, development uh, influence the stock to flow model? That it doesn't change the stock to flow model at all because that's just programmed. So first of all, just to be clear, I don't adhere to the stock-to-flow model. I think it's very interesting, and I think it has been pretty accurate so far. I'm actually more of a demand side, uh, I guess, Bitcoiner, where I think that the long-term price appreciation is based on um, uh, Metcalf's law and, and the growing network effect. Um, but that's a different story because, because to me, I look yeah. at the supply. Yeah. The supply I is agree with that. Yeah. yeah, so stock-to-flow doesn't change, right, because it's programmed every four years as you probably know, uh, at these halving cycles, that the, the amount of new Bitcoin coming on the market uh, every day will get cut in half every four years. And that you can't change that. It doesn't matter what these new uh, derivative products do and these new financial products uh, do uh, and what their effect is because the program can't change. It's, it's locked in until uh, in, into perpetuity. Thanks, Jeff. All right, we've got a couple more people that want to jump in on this topic. So first of all, there's, there's two. We've got shadowy Bitcoiner. So let's hear your question first. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't specifically have a have a question. I was just um, I was just hanging about seeing if I could give any input, but I'm I'm like the newest on the stage, so I don't want to say anything right now. So maybe someone else had a question. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. Hopefully you can jump in on a on a on a later topic. So we have one more person queued as a speaker, Hodlerado. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Have you got a question for us? Yeah, close enough. Uh, Dr. Ross wanted to ask you about uh, what your thoughts are on the biggest actual threat to Bitcoin coming up. We hear a lot of FUD, whether that's minor concentration, energy usage, government bans. But what do you think is the biggest threat in the, the near term, five to 10 years, not talking about quantum threats or things like that, but uh, what attack vectors or exogenous threats concern you the most and would uh, actually force you to reconsider your position? Sure, that's a that's a great question, and I think all good investors should think about the the bear case and 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 legitimately consider threats. I will tell you that for the last several years, my biggest concern has been against nation states because obviously nation states and especially the United States has the most to lose uh, with something like Bitcoin. You know, whereas fiat money is controlled by the government, it's centrally controlled, it can be printed to infinity, they can uh, manipulate it and do what they wish with it. Bitcoin is the exact opposite. It's decentralized, it can't be controlled. It, it's a fixed uh, supply of 21 million, so you can't print it to infinity. It's basically, I think, uh, it represents freedom. It's money that's by the people, of the people, and for the people. So who doesn't like that? Um, one great example is communism does not like Bitcoin. So communist China, uh, I think, uh, wisely, because of their beliefs, they looked at Bitcoin, and I don't think it was anything more nefarious than the fact that they realized that this is uh, antithetical to their centralized control beliefs. Uh, and so they banned Bitcoin, and they kicked the miners out of their country. Uh, I feel very bad. Uh, for Chinese citizens uh, because of that, because for people who want to uh, invest or save in Bitcoin in China, it makes it much more difficult for them to do that with a government who is unfriendly. Will the U.S. follow that same route? I was concerned that they were going to up until about a year or two ago when I think the narrative changed. I would say that the prior administration seemed to be particularly uh, displeased <laughs> with Bitcoin and, uh, and skeptical and kind of... Um, I would, uh, how would we say that? Not supportive of Bitcoin. And I think the new administration and the people who are currently in charge everywhere from the Federal Reserve to the Treasury to uh, the SEC chair, 
they are they they don't love it, but I think that they realize that Bitcoin is inevitable and it can't be stopped. And I think that's very wise that they think that because it can't be stopped. It's true. Stopping Bitcoin is just as easy as stopping the internet, as most people know, which is to say it's basically impossible. And so I think that um, the U.S. government is starting to come around uh, to more of a regulatory uh, regulatory approach versus uh, an outright ban of Bitcoin. That's encouraging to me because that just means they're starting to accept it as a legitimate asset class. Uh, and that it has a future. And I think the wisest thing that the U.S. government could do is that they would basically jump on the bandwagon um, of Bitcoin. And I think it could actually get them out of this incredible hole that they've dug themselves into uh, at the end of this Keynesian economic experiment where we find ourselves, where credit and uh, interest rates and uh, valuations of uh, stores of value are just completely out of control. Um, so that's a long-winded answer to say I was very concerned about a nation-state attack, and I'm, I'm much less concerned about that now. It was a short-term blow to Bitcoin for China to ban the miners, but in the long run, that's actually fantastic for Bitcoin and for the Bitcoin network. And I hope that the U.S. continues to um, uh, use this as a huge opportunity to import that wealth uh, through uh, Bitcoin miners and our abundant uh, wasted energy sources. Thanks, Jeff. Um Really full answer. Okay, well, uh, we've got a couple more people that want to jump in. So uh, I'll move the conversation on just briefly. And then obviously, if there's a particular topic people want to return to, uh, I'll uh, grab some more questions in a second. First question from me, though, why? I mean, I guess we've got a good understanding, at least of, of how you value Bitcoin and kind of what the potential value is with that particular cryptocurrency. But does that mean we should ignore all other altcoins, for example? What's your take on that? So I'm a funny person to ask about this because my take is, is different than most. I, I am not unfriendly to altcoins, but I think that Bitcoin has nothing to do with altcoins. They're just a completely separate market. I think that Bitcoin is uh, going to transform the world's monetary and financial system, literally transform it and make it basically 100 to 1,000 times better than the current system. Um, and, the, and that altcoins are, you know, God bless them, but I have no issue with people speculating in those things, but they're just entirely different. They don't have anything to do with Bitcoin. So, so they're, they're sort of two separate topics. I, I kind of get, I bristle a little bit when people talk about things like Bitcoin dominance or they compare Ethereum to Bitcoin. I just don't think they have anything to do with each other. So I think whereas, you know, you know, Bitcoin is very simple. It just does a few things very well. It's secure, it's impenetrable, it's unchangeable, it's decentralized money. And Ethereum is at its base layer. It is basically all things to all men. You can build whatever you want on it. It's sort of clunky, but it's awesome in that way. So it's kind of a, a software developer's dream. They can build whatever they want on it. Um, it requires lots of change and lots of uh, lots of handholding, uh, and there are going to be lots of uh, mistakes along the way. And that's totally fine. I don't really care if people want to do that. I think Ethereum and all altcoins. Um, they have tremendous upside potential, just like angel investing and venture capital can provide tremendous upside, uh, upside gains, but it's also with tremendous risk. And I think most of those products are competing with each other and eventually will go to zero um, because they're always trying to develop a bigger, better, faster, stronger uh, protocol that will um, outdo the current protocol. Um, so that's how I look at those things. If people want to speculate in those things, that's fantastic. They tend to ride the coattails of Bitcoin, meaning that if we have another Bitcoin bull market, which I think we're going to uh, start ramping up again in the next quarter, uh, the next few months, I think that altcoins will do well again, but then they're going to crash again, I think probably uh, 75 to 95% when it's all over. So I just caution people to be very careful, speculate in whatever you want, whatever altcoin you want, that's fine, but make sure you save in Bitcoin over the long run. To what extent then is it a safe haven? Like, Can we compare it to kind of gold and things like that in terms of the safety it gives investors? Should it be should it be looked at that way by investors? So the world's number one safe haven asset is clearly the US dollar right now. And whatever the world's reserve currency is, that is the world's safe haven asset, even more so than US treasuries, which are basically the de facto dollar, and more so than gold, which have traditionally been uh, you know, quasi safe haven assets. Why is that? It's because when people panic, so say March, let's, let's go back to March 2020, 
COVID finally hit the headlines. People were freaking out. Everybody wanted to, to sell their assets and move to safety. What does that mean? That means that in their brokerage accounts, they hit the sell button as fast as they can and their money is changed into the reserve assets. So for some people, you know, depending on where you live, it can be your base currency, your government fiat currency. But for most of the world, it's the US dollar. And so I think at some point there's going to be a flippening where the where Bitcoin uh, takes over as the world's reserve currency and as this base currency, and then it becomes the world's safe haven asset. I think that happens uh, by 2030. I don't know how soon. It could be quick. It could be five years sooner. It could be 10 years later. I'm not positive, but I'm, I'm kind of using 2030 as a landmark for that, where it becomes the de facto uh, safe haven asset of the world. Yeah, interesting. So until that point, then, to what extent can we look at it as a hedge or a useful hedge against sort of currency debasement, we're seeing that in the US at the moment. Uh, and a lot of market commentators are talking about that currency debasement. Can we see it as a hedge against against that uh, debasement or not? That's a great question. I think this gets confused a lot, uh, especially on you know uh, CNBC and Bloomberg a lot. Uh, I, I hear people mixing this up and they, they sort of mock it. And I'll explain what I mean. In the long run, Bitcoin is the absolute perfect hedge against fiat currency debasement. It's literally the perfect antithesis of government fiat currency. That's why it was created. In the short term, it's, it's a risk on assets still. It's still too small. It's still volatile so that when people panic and sell and when market crashes occur, what happens is people get forced to liquidate if they're levered uh, up on Bitcoin. Uh, and, and, they, and again, when they panic, they sell. Tons of people still don't understand Bitcoin. Only about 2.5% of the world's population actually has any um, Bitcoin um, uh, holdings at all. And so that, that has a long ways to go, and I, but that's, that's rapidly increasing. So that means 97.5% uh, of the world's population, when they panic and sell, they don't sell um, uh, other things and, and buy Bitcoin. They sell their Bitcoin and they go into the reserve currency, usually the US dollar. So short run, no, uh, it is not a, a great hedge uh, in the short term because people panic and they're going to sell their Bitcoin. But in the long run, it's literally the perfect hedge against currency uh, fiat currency devaluation. Yeah, great. Okay, thanks, Jeff. Uh, Dordu's been waiting very patiently. Uh, have you got a question for us? Yes, thank, thank you, uh, Dr. Jeff Ross and Opto, for the um, opportunity to speak on this space. So I have a quick question I want you guys to elucidate on. If Bitcoin surpasses gold at that um, $600,000 mark, don't quote me on that, but I think that's the number where it'll surpass um, gold's market cap. Do you think that America will add that as their uh, reserve currency or start to kind of talk about it more in the public? Or are they kind of going to take a back turn and let, let other developing countries continue to adopt and they kind of uh, let pride get in the way and, and take their time? That's a great question, uh, Dadu. Thanks for coming up. Um, that's the, the trillion dollar question, right? When would the US actually go from being somewhat adversarial towards Bitcoin to actually being pro-Bitcoin and actually using it as a digital reserve asset? First of all, I'll say I think it's inevitable. Um, will it happen when uh, Bitcoin flips the market cap of possibly? I, I don't know that they're kind of sitting there and using that as, um, as a, a landmark or a milestone. I think more it's a political discussion that needs to happen. And I think as as the Bitcoin story uh, uh, rages on uh, throughout the years and as more and more people adopt it and it becomes more socially acceptable to own and talk about Bitcoin ownership, um, I think it's just inevitable that it will become sort of politically ac acceptable at some. In fact, I think it's going to be a, an actual issue in the 2024 campaigns, um, but we'll, we'll see about that. So so it, is the flipping what will, will cause it to happen? Not necessarily, but I think probably somewhere around that time, because we're going to see that narrative all over uh, in the business journals, right? CNBC, Bloomberg and, and such, Opto, even they'll be talking about it, about how, you know, Bitcoin finally flipped gold. Is it a better store of value? We'll see headlines and people will be arguing about that, even though, you know, those of us who have been early to the story have, have been watching 
watching this happen uh, for for years before that, um, the general public will start to accept it as the uh, world's best store of value, and then it will be acceptable for governments to um, to publicly proclaim that they hold it as uh, a reserve asset on their balance sheets. So uh, that's kind of a, a long-winded answer to say I'm not sure about the timing, but but that's probably sort of accurate as far as the timing. Maybe four to five years, we start to see something like that could be as late as ten years uh, that the U.S. government actually adopts it as its digital reserve asset. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Jeff. So I want to finish um, the discussion by uh, covering recent price action. Um, it's something that we cover extensively on a daily basis on Opto and obviously Jeff on his Twitter feed as well. So we saw some pretty big price action on Tuesday, uh, probably uh, or predominantly, I should say, caused by the tech problems hit that hit El Salvador's Bitcoin debut. I mean, prices moved large sideways since. So where do you think it's heading in the short term, Jeff? And then we can move on to kind of your medium and longer term outlooks. Sure. Well, I will say that um, I've been bracing for September <laughs> for months because people who have studied Bitcoin, for whatever reason, September is an ugly month. And that even includes the 2013 and 2017 bull markets. Uh, it was barely positive after a tumultuous 2013 September and a negative after a tumultuous 2017 uh, month in September. And so I think we're, we just have more of the same for whatever reason. Um, I agree that, uh, you know, the El Salvador thing, it's very exciting that to me that they've adopted it uh, as legal tender there. Um, there's going to be tons of, of glitches and missteps along the way. So I, I'm, I'm personally, uh, anybody who knows tech knows that this is just kind of par for the course. So they're going to improve it as they go. So short term, I think a sideways choppy uh, volatile September is likely. I don't know where we end. Obviously, we could be a little up or a little down. I'm not sure personally, because I think that the coming months, uh, October and November in particular, I think are going to be um, uh, explosive to the upside. So I am using this as a backup the truck uh, buying opportunity for both Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin miners. Yeah, great. Okay, well, let's move on to medium and long-term outlooks then. That's probably the, the more interesting question. I mean, particularly in relation to macro and on-chain factors, where do you see price headed first in the medium term? I guess by medium term, I mean the next six to 12 months. Where, where do you see us headed? Uh, that's a great question. So I, I get um, asked this a lot, and 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 I and I give kind of an unsatisfying answer, and that is depending on how quickly the price rises in the coming months. That's what I'll be watching to see where I think it's going to go in the in the months to follow. So what do I mean by that? If we have a huge parabolic move higher, like we did back in 2013 and at the end of 2017 as well, and that's very possible, by the way. Just just as a quick side note. We, we have almost exactly the same price action uh, this year as we did in 2013, uh, including that huge pullback, then a recovery. And then the last um, three months uh, from September through November of 2013, Bitcoin actually 10x at that point. And so I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I, I actually think it's possible that we could see as high as four to 500,000 before this year is over, which would just completely melt faces off and be mind-blowing. I don't, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I just say that I think it could happen. If it if it goes like that, then I think then I think we're going to have a, an extreme bearish pullback that could last again similar to prior uh, uh, bull bear market cycles that it could last 12 to 8 months where where we're kind of in the doldrums and we have another crypto winter as they call it. If though we have kind of a uh, an unsatisfying end to this year, and I would say anything that's around 100,000 or less for a peak price. By the end of this year, I would say that's unsatisfying and 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 too low. I think that the reason why that may happen is because of what happened to the uh, China uh, explosion of miners and the drop in hash rate. 
that was a really severe blow to the hash rate uh, and computing power. And so uh, miners are scrambling to get set up again in, in the U.S. and around the world. And as that recovers, uh, so too does the price. They tend to be they, they tend to be somewhat correlated. Um, so if we have a, a kind of a slow recovery, and I would say the slowness is not only be, because of miners just scrambling for space, but also because of the worldwide semiconductor uh, shortage that we're having. We're having major supply chain issues that could kind of lag behind. And if that happens and we have kind of a disappointing end to 2021, I could see the bull market extending into 2022 uh, and and probably topping somewhere around uh, February, March of 2022 before uh, any kind of a pullback. So I'm watching and waiting. Uh, and but I think that like I don't think we we go into basically a, a constantly up cycle. I think we still have uh, significant uh, human emotions um, in Bitcoin as in any asset class because people hate losing money and they get greedy and want to make money. So we see these cycles. So I do think depending on the size of the increase, especially if it's parabolic, that will kind of we'll have a commensurate uh, bear market uh, on the flip side of that. Yeah, great. Okay, well that's the short and medium term outlook. And so I think it only makes sense to finish on the long term outlook over the next. Three to five years, let's say, so you finish on 2022. On that point, for the next couple of years beyond that, what's the key level that we should be looking out for? Sure. So my my view on this, and I think this is a conservative view based on history, but it still is kind of mind-blowing. I think uh, about a 10x every four years is reasonable um, for the price of Bitcoin. Um, and so that would put us, so if we have, you know, by the end of this year, I, I think we, we were around 100,000. I think by about the same time at the end of 2025, I'm looking at a, a price of one Bitcoin at about 1 million per Bitcoin. And then uh, it follows that four years after that, I think we're about 10 million per Bitcoin. Um, I think that's reasonable. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but, but based on just the programmatic nature of Bitcoin and the worldwide adoption, I think it's an extremely uh, reasonable assumption. Yeah, certainly. Okay, uh, well, I, that's all the questions from me. I don't think we've got anyone else that wants to ask any questions. We've still got Shadowy Bitcoiner and Marcel uh, linked up as speakers, so obviously feel free to add something now. If not, I will. we just got a short outro for you, just a reminder on a few things. Firstly, thank you to everyone that's joined the Spaces event today. This is the first one Opto has run. We've had a massive, um, massive turnout for it, uh, which we're massively appreciative of, and it's great to have such a fantastic speaker. Jeff, you gave some fantastic answers, and I think uh, the audience have had have had a good sort of forty five minutes or so. Uh, we're looking very much forward to hosting a few more of these spaces events in the upcoming weeks. Uh, certainly, more with Jeff uh, whenever he's got some free time. Uh, and in the meantime, if you have any further questions which didn't get answered today, please just reach out to Opto or obviously Jeff as well on Twitter. Uh, we'll be sure to get back to you as soon as possible. Also, be sure to tweet us and let us know what you thought of the event today. Feedback's very much appreciated. As I said, it's the first one. I'm sure there's a lot of ways we can improve. Uh, and if you've got any ideas around certain topics or subjects you'd like us to cover in future Spaces events, then we can certainly cover that. You know, as Sophie, we're an investment publisher, we're not just restricted to talking about cryptocurrencies. If there's anything in the stock market space you'd like us to cover, we'd be certainly happy to do that as well. Uh, so once again, a big thank you to Jeff Ross and everyone who's joined. Uh, and I'll leave it there. So have, have a great rest of your day, everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.
by fruition.